This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Your Money on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Your Money, SiriusXM Channel 132 Business Radio. That's powered by the Wharton School. I'm Kent S. Smothers. Both of us are here at Wharton and we are still taping these segments via Zoom as the University of Pennsylvania remains closed. Uh, and so uh, later on, when you can hear me on live shows, you can also connect with me on my website, kentonmoney.com. And I have a growing list of the only financial advisors. Remember, that's the only type of financial advisor we want you to have memorized. Only the only. And I've also uh, pre-screened them for their approach to low-cost passive index investing. Again, that's kentonmoney.com. So the historic rate of unemployment brought on by COVID-19 pandemic has pushed us all uh, to you know, think harder about things like real estate and other investments and really has pushed the country uh, to a new rental crisis uh, as many people are having a hard time making their rent. So my guest today has been crunching the numbers. He's a major expert and he's joining us by Zoom. Professor Sam Shandon is the Larry and Clara Silverstein Chair in the Real Estate Development uh, Department at NYU. He's an economist and his research interests uh, include commercial and residential real estate markets, uh, the economics of cities and macroeconomic policy. And he co-authors with a lot of people here at the Wharton School. Sam, welcome to your money. Thanks very much, Kent. Delighted to be here. Uh, I should also point out Sam is also the Associate Dean um, at NYU. And so you wrote a terrific story um, recently in Forbes about America's next housing crisis. And, and indeed, the numbers seem to suggest that. So you know, explain a little bit for the listeners why housing stability is tied so much to the health of the U.S. labor market. Sure. I think what we see is that a lot of the focus right now as relates to housing has been on historically low mortgage rates, people being able to take advantage of the opportunity to refinance existing mortgages, perhaps even folks uh, making the move from more urban areas to more suburban areas. There's a lot of speculation about that. Where we have a crisis emerging um, is that uh, relatively lower income, income constrained Americans, income constrained families uh, have been hardest hit by the pandemic in terms of uh, the job losses, in terms of uh, their uh, capacity and ability to get back to work. Uh, But it's also the case that uh, those relatively more income constrained families uh, are more likely to be renters. So where we find ourselves today is in a situation where many folks uh, are uh, struggling to find ways uh, to pay their rent. Now, many of them have been protected in the early stages of the pandemic Uh, at the federal level by a moratorium on evictions uh, for properties that are backed by federal mortgages from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Federal Housing Administration, FHA, and at the state and local level in many parts of the country, moratoria as well, so that when folks have not been able to actually make their rent payment every month, they've been protected um, against uh, against the possibility of eviction. Uh, Whether it's the moratoria whether it's uh, you know, some of the other federal supports that were included in the CARES Act uh, 
yeah. uh, that are designed to you know, support people's incomes. Um, many of those are beginning to fade uh, and have faded away in the last couple of weeks, really exposing folks to the possibility of eviction. Yeah, and you write in your article that you know a lot of these lower income uh, uh, cash constrained households were feeling the you know the pressure even before that pandemic. This is really uh, the pandemic has really embellished and made um, and magnified uh, these problems, of course. And uh, you, you mentioned the CARES Act that renters can receive help under the CARES Act these past few months. So, so what is the data showing? Uh, how much are they uh, putting that? Or things like rents and um, you know paying down the mortgage, you know versus other things. Sure, you know a challenge for us uh, on in the policy community and any scenario like this where things are fast changing um, is that our traditional data sources uh, can rarely keep up uh, right. with uh, our, our the, the need that we have for information that can help to guide policy. Um, and so a lot of the analysis that we've been doing has relied upon um, a new survey uh, the, introduced by the Census Bureau uh, around mid-April uh, called, uh, called the Pulse Survey. There's an employment pulse, there's, there's a household pulse, um, and, and that's being updated every week. There, there are some issues with uh, you know, refining uh, you know, that data, but we have been leveraging it um, and the micro data in particular uh, to guide our thinking about what's going on here. And what we see is that relatively income-constrained households have relied very heavily on a couple of things that were made available through uh, the CARES Act. One is the economic impact payments or the, you know, the stimulus payments, as they're sometimes referred to, those checks of $1,200, a significant share of families making below $25,000 or $35,000 have really drawn on those payments uh, to make rent. Uh, the other thing that has been absolutely critical, Kent, is that families have been relying upon those ex that extra $600 um, in uh, unemployment benefits that have been made available at the federal level. Uh, what we know is that those benefits, uh, that extra $600 a week has now run its course. In Congress, uh, they're debating what to do with this. You know, there are mixed feelings around whether or not that's you know, proving to be a disincentive uh, for getting people back to work. Uh, there's economic analysis that's been done uh, around that, but uh, you know, decisions are being made in obviously a highly political environment um, without that benefit, uh, what the data suggests to us at this point is that people are fairly exposed. There are just going to be a lot of folks out there who have no way of making their rent payment. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, it, it, a lot of things could uh, spiral out of control uh, uh, from from there. So now that the act um, has uh, basically expired, you know. How confident are you that renters are going to be able to make August payments? Yeah. I think what we see is that when we again look at the data, and there are forward-looking questions around uh, you know, particular groups of um, you know, confidence in their ability to make uh, the August rent payment, um, what I should say is that uh, there's a, a bit of a divide here between the policy community uh, that's looking at you know, some of the available microdata, is looking at surveys that are being run by the Urban Institute and others, then on the other side of it, industry. Um, the, the National Multi-Housing Council has done a really wonderful job in collecting data uh, from uh, professionally managed properties, but these are generally institutional in quality. And, and what that industry data shows is that folks have been able to keep up with rent payments. What's uh, undercounted um, in, uh, and, and underrepresented in that sample, however, is the relatively smaller property, the single family home for rent, 
where um, particularly for those smaller uh, assets where a lot of the income constrained families are going to live. What we see is that um, you know, families making have it with incomes below twenty-five or thirty-five thousand uh, dollars in communities of color, um, renters with children, um, mm. you know, are are the ones that are really are uh, most at risk here. Now, we don't want to overstate how many are at true risk of eviction because what we also know is that you know the eviction is going to be a lose-lose scenario in a weak rental market for both the landlord and uh, the tenant because there aren't other prospective tenants waiting in the wings to you know, move into that property. And so uh, what we're going to see uh, for folks that have the capacity to make some kind of meaningful payment, that one-on-one negotiations with their landlords are going to preclude evictions in some cases. But you are right. going to have families where you know, the economic calculus for the landlord means that it is going to you know, be rational for them to actually move that non-paying tenant out of the property. Uh, and that's going to be a, a real problem. But we do see yeah. that, again, we've got you know, uh, renters with children. Uh, we've got relatively more income-constrained families, multi-generational families, uh, you know, the disproportionate impact on, on communities of color, all significantly at risk here. Yeah. Uh, it, it, do you think there's going to be any new program uh, it, it, that will include some type of moratorium, some type of financial assistance for paying rent? So when we're looking at sort of the, the, the back and forth in Congress over the weekend, uh, over you know, the, certainly uh, it looks like it'll be a discussion that continues for some time uh, before they uh, come to agreement, uh, particularly on the size of the uh, enhanced unemployment benefit, there has not been thus far any meaningful discussion around any policy that would specifically focus on protecting renters. Um, what we want to be careful of, because there have been widespread calls for broad-based uh, or sort of far-reaching rent moratoria is that uh, we have to be mindful of the ecosystem here. I think part of the call for uh, moratoria can assume, and incorrectly, that landlords are always deep-pocketed, large owners of you know, vast pools of multifamily properties, rental apartments, uh, what we find is that most renters in the United States actually live in properties that are owned by the proverbial mom and pop uh, landlord. Uh, and they have a limited capacity uh, on their own to pay yeah. taxes, to make their own mortgage payments, uh, to maintain the upkeep of the property if the tenants aren't paying. So if we impose a broad moratorium on, uh, on uh, evictions uh, in a way, uh, you know, reducing the incentive of even folks who can make rent payments to make those rent payments, yeah. you know, the spill, uh, sort of, you know, the, the domino effect into, uh, you know, the broader market of those, you know, again, mom and pop uh, property owners is potentially significant. Yeah, and I always thought that was a, a real concern with the uh, act in, in some of the moratoriums, including ones in New York City and elsewhere, is simply, um, you know, uh, you, you do have a lot of the people who could pay their rent and, you know, it, it does seem like it's putting the landlords at risk, even uh, against people who could pay their, pay their rent. It seems like there should have been like some form of trigger, like a application for unemployment insurance or, or something like that. But in any case, um, investors and, you know, lenders, as you write in your article, don't seem to be as concerned. I mean, as you talk about, you kind of already hinted at this, you know, there's these kind of these two narratives that you talk about 
in the rental space in, in your article. I mean, why aren't we seeing financial markets uh, more broadly really be concerned? Because if you see a lot of defaults, you know, this is what we saw in 2008, although different, you know, there was not the same, you know, uh, uh, types of leverage that we had in 2008. But nonetheless, I mean, that was obviously a big uh, uh, shock. Why don't financial markets seem to be as concerned uh, as you are at this point? I think it is because there are, as you described, two very different market narratives here and two different markets. Uh, you know, uh, again, National Multi -Housing, Multifamily Housing Council, NMHC, uh, has uh, really done uh, fantastic work in collecting data from, uh, you know, the, uh, from a variety of software providers. Uh, with regard to rent payment rates, and they update that every week. But they're also very careful to communicate that um, the pool of uh, underlying assets are professionally managed. And what we see is in this space, uh, you know, they're not all class A high-rise, you know, luxury apartment buildings, right. but overrepresented in this pool is a relatively higher quality asset and a relatively higher quality, more creditworthy tenant. Um, and so those numbers actually do look strong. We don't see a significant deterioration in rent payment rates as compared to you know, the same week, uh, same week a, a year ago. But what is uh, undercounted there and underrepresented there outside of that professionally managed space is that building that might have three or four apartment units, that uh, right. you know, urban walk-up uh, building that doesn't have institutional ownership or management. Um, and it's there that uh, you know, our, our concerns are really focused because those are going to be the buildings that are most at risk, uh, where income-constrained families are more likely to live. There's a lower price point you know, on that property. You know, it's not the property that is, uh, that, uh, is characterized by a significant number of additional um, amenities. And yeah. so I think you have to be really careful there in understanding that uh, there's a different set of circumstances uh, in this sort of other world of uh, units and properties that are not professionally managed. Um, and, and that's why I think you see that there's one description of the trend that, that is accurate when we're talking about sort of the industry and institutional quality inventory. But when we talk to folks in the policy community, whether it's members, you know, academic researchers, folks at Brookings or Urban or elsewhere, um, you know, there, there's real concern around what's going on with the income constrained population. Yeah, and you know, in many ways, it's like the, the restaurant business. You, you, lots of the mom and pop shops are going out. Uh, they don't have access to the broad capital markets uh, like some of the national chains uh, and so on. Uh, and so we've seen in the press that rental rates have come down. Um, and as a result, you know, less competition of the craziness that you often saw in San Francisco, New York, and so forth, where you had you know, 20, 30 bidders in the same, well, it could sometimes be for, for a mortgage, for buying a home, or it could even be for an apartment. So is this a kind of a, a buyer's market right now or a rental, renter's market um, in, uh, across the U.S., but especially in a lot of these uh, major uh, cities that were extremely popular in the past? Sure. I think sort of in those superstar cities, what we see is that, uh, you know, property owners and developers are concerned that it may be both a renter's market and a buyer's market. Mm. Um, because, you know, we normally talk about uh, sort of, you know, whether it makes sense to, to rent or buy at any particular point in time. You know, there's a larger discussion 
um, in the market right now around you know, what uh, going to going back to work will look like, uh, the extent to which you know, markets like New York and San Francisco uh, will uh, you know continue will, will remain as attractive as they've been for much of this cycle uh, and, and as they've been historically, uh, or, or whether uh, we see that there's a slightly different balance. Um, particularly in terms of sort of expectations around people going into work. Um, I don't hear very many folks talking about the death of cities, no one going into major urban areas again. But you could imagine that even if you're not moving from a primary to a secondary market, that in a market like New York or San Francisco, you know, going into the office two or three days a week instead of five days a week opens up a whole new range of possibilities for you around right. where you'd be able to live. Um, and for some folks, uh, that is going to mean uh, that uh, there is a move outside of uh, the urban core. Part of that analysis, and it's one that will be slow to develop and evolve, is around the, you know, the fiscal competitiveness of some of these you know, major metropolitan areas as the, uh, you know, the pandemic has you know, really undone uh, any semblance of fiscal st stability uh, and uh, tax efficiency. Right. Yeah. It's it'll be, it's going to be very interesting to see how things evolve. Are we kind of overreacting to something that's uh, more short term, or is there going to be permanent uh, changes? Uh, part, partly because of the fiscal issues that you talked about, and also maybe attitudes of companies changing as they experience uh, workers working remotely. Are they happy with it or or, or not? Fantastic uh, job, uh, Sam. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Ken. You can follow Professor Sam Shandon on Twitter with the handle at Sam Shandon, and that's uh, Shandon is spelled a C-H, C-H-A-N-D-A-N, again, at Sam Shandon, or check out his personal website, samshandon.com. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.